Happy Monday and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show for you today. Hello, Brianna. How was your weekend? My weekend was wonderful, relaxing, very friend-filled. How about yours? Oh, good. Yeah, I got some sun. Uh, was by the pool a little bit. Yeah, good oh, weekend. Okay, Robbie. Well, I hope you enjoyed it because we're getting right into the thick of things this yes, week. Big news. Let's go. There's some hot gossip over new potential Trump indictment rumors. Numerous legal experts are predicting that former President Donald Trump could be facing another indictment, according to Newsweek. And the reason for the prediction, the timeline. The Department of Justice's grand jury investigating Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents is scheduled to reconvene in Washington, D.C. sometime in the next week, according to NBC News. The case is being overseen by special counsel Jack Smith and has appeared to pick up steam with various experts claiming that indictments could be coming in the days or weeks following Memorial Day, according to the reports. Liberal media is, of course, frothing at the mouth over the speculation. Here's a video roundup from over the weekend. He knew he was in possession of a, of a, uh, of a classified document that he improperly, illegally took from the White House. It's huge, uh, Anderson. You can't really uh, overstate the significance here. I'm trying not to use hyperbole. This is game over. Um, there's no way that he will not be charged. And here's former FBI Director James Comey on Inside with Jen Psaki. Can you envision a scenario where Trump manages to win back the White House and justice is delayed? I could. I don't, I don't want to, but I could. I mean, it's this crazy world that Donald Trump has dragged this country into, but he could be wearing an ankle bracelet while accepting the nomination at the Republican convention. And could be wearing an ankle bracelet and be elected in November. Yeah, we could have... It would be rejected if you put it in a script for a show, but you could have a president who is potentially incarcerated when he's elected president. So that would be weird and awkward. And it seems even crazy to be coming out of my mouth, but that's the situation we face. This commentary reminds me of that famous uh, tweet that's, well, I'd like to see old Donnie wriggle his way out of this one. <laughs> Donald Trump gets out of it. Oh, never, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Yeah, I mean, so there is something that feels very uh, reheated about this whole conversation, which perhaps doesn't reflect very well on Donald Trump that he's been kind of the subject of this rumor mill for a very long time that something or the other was going to put him in jail and if not preclude him from actually running for president or being president, make it less likely that the general public would be interested in voting for him, right? And of course, obviously, people who are on the Democratic side of the aisle are very excited about this. Now, just to stay with the facts of the charges for a second, ever since we started talking about the New York case, people have said, well, even folks who are very salivating over the idea of Donald Trump going to prison have said that this was a much stronger case. The document case was a much stronger case than the uh, Stormy Daniels case. And remember, last week we covered the story that federal prosecutors mm -hmm. had obtained audio from the summer of 2021 of Donald Trump acknowledging that he had held on to classified, at least one classified Pentagon document about a potential attack on Iran. And that really galvanized the media into thinking that this was the one that was going to fell him politically in some way. However, it is difficult for me Seeing it described as it's just described there, the fact that he can still run and be president with that proverbial ankle monitor on, it suggests to me that there might be some political blowback here for Democrats that they're not quite anticipating. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't understand the case that this is stronger, and, and frankly, than the Stormy Daniels payment thing. To me, this is in the same ballpark, if not even more uh, insignificant. Why is that? Because who cares? Who but cares? Legally, Robbie, it's, the well, question well, okay, is. Okay, but legally, if they're trying to entangle Trump and just get him on something, it's just the same BS as everything else. Yes, our presidents, our political figures handle documents, might have handled them improperly, as, as I've said before. Donald Trump handled them more improperly than other political figures. That might also be the case. It just doesn't, it doesn't matter. Well, we have it to. It shouldn't matter. As a policy matter, if, is it illegal? Do people care? Like, are we just going to enforce stupid things? But we're going to have to see what the actual indictment is and have a closer look at what the legal standards are. But remember, the reason that the Stormy Daniel case is considered to be less strong isn't because there isn't ample factual evidence that what happened happened, but that the legal theory that they're trying to get Trump on that turns it from a misdemeanor into a felony is very weak. It's legally weak. It's not factually a weak case. It's legally a weak case insofar as that they want to get Donald Trump on something more substantial than just the same kind of misdemeanor it's that Hillary Clinton had to pay for doing the exact same thing. In this case, to me, the having the document aspect is completely overshadowed by what the document is alleged to have said, which we don't know because we haven't actually seen it. Yeah, we, we don't which, know. But what, even what the mainstream reporting on it has been is that it concerned war plans with, with, for Iran mm -hmm. that Milley, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Joint Chiefs head, was mm -hmm. advocating for. Right, but That's what I, I care I, I about. Get, I get what you're saying, Robbie, and I understand substantively that there are, frankly, a lot of crimes that people get thrown in jail for that are substantively perhaps things that should not be illegal. I think things. we agree, for example, yeah. about a, any number of uh, marijuana-related drug crimes, for instance. Yeah. However, that's a very different question. Like, and we talked about that at length last week, and I think I completely agree with you on the overclassification of documents point, on the politicization point, on the lack of reporting on the substance of the documents and what it means I'd like for to Trump put a to be the one resisting war. In prison for engaging, for launching illegal wars, I, I, or I, for stealing elections, or something, not for not following proper protocols with respect to documents. I get all of that, Robbie, That's but the, the question here is whether or not there is a strong legal case for people and justice departments that are incentivized to hold mm -hmm. Donald Trump accountable for what may or may not be a legitimate violation of the law with real criminal penalties, separate and apart and different from what was going on in the Stormy Daniels case, where it is legally flimsy regardless of whether or not substantively you think it's a big deal for a president to be making payments to porn stars or however Ron DeSantis put it. Yeah, what Comey was getting at there, that he could be president while still facing, it really puts it in perspective. Like, if people vote for Trump, he will be president again. You can't get around that. And, and the, the crowd of commentators on CNN and MSNBC and just in mainstream publications, the law enforcement people, they're always looking at this from a law enforcement perspective. Mm -hmm. We need to get Donald Trump on something so we can stop him being from the president. Mm -hmm. But he will be stopped from being the president if someone beats him in the election, as they did last time. Joe Biden beat Donald Trump. Um, now, YouTube has changed its policies, actually. Did you see that? No. Just in the last few days? So we could, if we wanted to, we could say Trump actually won the 2020 election. We can say that now. Interesting. We don't, I don't think that. I'm kidding. But uh, yeah, you didn't see this? No. Over the weekend, YouTube totally abandoned, saying that they worry it created more harms than, uh, than, than the, the benefit of policing misinformation. What were the, did they articulate what harms they imagine? 
I mean, what, what in their mind are the harms that are caused by not allowing? They said it legitimate political free speech. Interesting. Yeah, conceding I, I, what we argued all along. I think that's along. fair, because I remember no, I said- No, it's totally, yeah, I, we argued that all along. But when we were, when we were specifically- <laughs> We were chilled. <laughs> right, but when we were specifically talking about uh, Donald Trump's CNN town hall, I remember saying that I had not heard a lot of the arguments that he was making on the stage that night. And there's a there's a world where we would you know people who disagree mm -hmm. with him would be more equipped to push back or not to just take what he was saying at face value if there had been substantive engagement with those points as opposed to just the kind of flat he he didn't he didn't win the election he didn't win the election narrative not narrative but like response that has been coming out of the mainstream media so that's a very interesting turn of events yeah on Friday they announced they were changing that policy interesting, interesting. well one, one last point to note is that of course I have to say as a you know, socialist that the last time we had this scenario play out was Eugene Debs in, what, 1920, yep. running as a socialist from jail. There's a history in this country of trying to imprison people whose politics that you don't agree with. And that was the outcome there. He still managed to get 6% of the vote, which is the highest number uh, of votes for the Socialist Party as a, from a presidential perspective in the United States of America. And we could be living in a world where Donald Trump is able to uh, similarly do some do some political damage from a jail cell. It just shows you how I don't know mainstream views and narratives of history persist. Eugene V. Debs jailed by the Woodrow Wilson administration. Woodrow Wilson is like often listed as a top five beloved president. I'm not a big fan of him. You're probably Oof. not. He does the... No, they wait, had to change had a, the name of Princeton's public policy In school. the last few years, there's been some reevaluating of Wilson. <laughs> oh, yeah, big time. Way, right up there with um, FDR, Lincoln, et cetera. Um, jailed by Wilson for free, free speech, total obvious violation of the First mm -hmm. Amendment. Um, let go, by, uh, released from prison by Warren G. Harding, who everyone says is like the worst president ever. Just <laughs> find, I find these little revisionisms interesting. Yeah, for sure. More rising right after this. In a moment that perhaps only a small handful of Americans have asked for, former Vice President Mike Pence is officially running for president, setting up an inevitably anticlimactic clash between him and his former running mate, Donald Trump. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is also expected to join the race. However, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu told CNN's Dana Bash that he will not be following suit. Let's watch. We've taken the last six months to really kind of look at things, where everything is, and I've made the decision not to run for president on the Republican ticket in 2024. And obviously a lot goes into that decision, but um, it's been quite an adventure, but not the end of the adventure by any means. Sununu, a no-no on running for <laughs> president. Uh, later in that interview, he says what is a very astute observation is that, like, look, I don't want Trump to be the president, the nominee again, and I feel like we're just going to be splitting the anti-Trump vote at this point, which, yeah, um, he should have a conversation with Chris Christie about that. And also, frankly, Mike Pence, who, uh, you know, look, is, uh, has, has wanted to run for president for a long time, was up until January 5th a very plausible uh, <laughs> successor to Donald Trump as the Republican standard bearer. But, A, Donald Trump is not actually going away, so he's not handing the baton off to anyone. And, uh, B, Mike Pence has absolutely zero credibility, none whatsoever. Uh, it would be hard to find a, a major Republican figure with less credibility with the Republican base than Mike Pence. There will be more Democrats voting for Mike yeah, I mean, obviously not in the Republican primary. It but is interesting. Let me, let no me just steel man period. this a little bit. There is an argument that having certain candidates in the race 
can help to clear the way for some of Trump's opponents by drawing heat and making attacks that maybe the front runners shouldn't be making. So, for example, there was this moment in the very crowded Democratic primary field in 2020 where um, uh, Tulsi Gabbard was not very successful, but she really kneecapped Kamala Harris, and that was the beginning of the end of her campaign when she called her out on flip-flopping on Joe Biden's record on um, busing and integration. There was another moment where Elizabeth Warren, who also failed to win a single state, did have some impact toward the end of the race when she basically knocked uh, Bloomberg mm -hmm. out of the running by getting him on some of this Me Too stuff. So, you know, do you think there's a possibility that someone like Mike Pence, because of his track record with evangelicals, say, or um, someone like Chris Christie, who can be somewhat more bombastic than others, like Mike Pence, maybe can hit Donald Trump on some of his personal bad behavior or kind of things can be useful insofar as that they can get the, the attack out there and then, can, then recede from view. Use the words bombastic and Mike Pence in the same sentence, no, no, Chris right? Christie, Chris Christie is well, bombastic in a way that Mike Pence isn't. Thinks he is. And can yeah. make, can arguably take a hit at Donald yeah. Trump. And even if Donald Trump hits back and it hurts Chris Christie, at least DeSantis doesn't have to get his hands dirty a, and the claim is yeah, out there. DeSantis needs to get his hands dirty. This has never worked. The, the whole go after Trump thing, it like it just doesn't, it hasn't, it didn't work. It really, really much did not happen in 2016. Um, what happened in 2016 is that 14, 15, 16 people ran in this Republican primary and Donald Trump entered it with like a quarter of the support, maybe more, of the Republican primary electorate and the rest of it was fractured amongst a million people and that remained, uh, that remained the situation and so he ran, ran away with it. Um, the more people get in, the more you're likely, I think, just to repeat that dynamic. And also, Mike Pence doesn't have a—he uh, is known to Republicans as the guy who—like, there's a lack of—there's a perception of a lack of toughness. You now, you can say that what he did was very brave and should be celebrated. He stood up to Trump. He said, no, uh, Biden has won the election. What you're asking me to do is something I can't do. And if he'd been celebrated by conservative media for that, and they had stuck by him, we might be in a different situation. But the reality is no one in conservative media stuck by him, um, except for like bulwark dispatch type people who aren't really operating actually in conservative yeah. media world. Conservative media and, and primary voters and everyone hates what he did. Hates it. Yeah, so this So is he's the, not, there's nothing for him. Yeah, I think Mike Pence, it's hard to see a path, yeah. but the, I think the argument that I'm making is something different. If people stood, stayed in the race until, like, through the through the primaries, then they would be damaging. Obviously, they would be splitting the vote. If you get out before the primaries, yeah. even meaningfully before the primaries, then you're, not, you're no longer splitting the vote. So, again, what happened in 2020 on the Democrat side was that there was, a, you know, they allowed there to be a, a wide open field. 16, you know, I think it got up to, like, in the 20s. There were people, like, Patrick Duvall, people you know, sure. forgot were even running, who had thrown their hat in the ring. But when push came to shove, when Obama picked up the call and called the Democratic primary candidates, uh, they all dropped out uh, in enough time for Joe Biden to consolidate the votes behind him. So again, there's this question of whether or not it is useful to other non-Trump candidates to have some people raising concerns. We uh, There was a, a clip going around of Tim Scott getting to some back and forth on The View, raising conservative issues, uh, perhaps running for vice president, but regardless, making space for a different kind of conservative candidate in a liberal sphere, a space that Donald Trump would never enter into in a way that might 
help normalize the idea of a more normal kind of Republican candidate? Is this something I mean, that the Republicans should think of as a, as a strategic advantage look, at I, this time? I, I, honestly, this is going to be weird to say, but it, it, it makes more sense for Tim Scott to run than Mike Pence, because you're, somebody does have to be the VP. I, I think for people like Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, essentially what they're doing is VP auditions, and either of them are somewhat plausible. I think Tim Scott is a very plausible VP pick for whoever ends up being the nominee, so I can see why he's doing it. I don't think Mike Pence is realistically going to be in contention to be VP, because Trump is not going to pick him to be VP, right. and it would be it would be sort of weird to have the VP again, also be a VP again, not be the main candidate. If DeSantis, I mean, maybe they cut some kind of deal. I don't know. I don't know if that's what DeSantis is interested in. Um, it just seems to me, ultimately, like it's not going to be that his, I don't think his candidacy is going to make much of a splash whatsoever. Um, if it is making a, a splash, it's probably splitting the vote a little bit for DeSantis. Maybe it, that won't matter if he gets out early, if he endorses DeSantis. I think that would be uh, important. That would probably be what he can do if, if what he cares about is stopping Trump from from being the nominee again. Yeah, well. And it all might come short. But I, and then we had uh, some other candidate news we wanted to get to. Yes, there's not only Republicans throwing their hat in the ring. Cornel West announced he's running for president as part of the People's Party. Mm. Yeah, so he announced just maybe half an hour ago or so on Twitter, he put out a campaign video saying that he's fighting for the people's interest. I think we have a clip of it now. Well, let's we can play. take a look. In these bleak times, I have decided to run for truth and justice, which takes the form of running for president of the United States as a candidate for the People's Party. I enter in the quest for truth. I enter in the quest for justice. And the presidency is just one vehicle to pursue that truth and justice, what I've been trying to do all of my life. It's nice to see a young man get into the Democratic race. <laughs> yeah, we were joking off camera that at 70 years old, he's part of the young flank of announced <laughs> Democratic candidates as opposed to uh, Trump and Biden. Look, what, what do you make of this? Do you think that there's room here? I, I, I don't know. I find Cornell West to be an affable guy uh, who, who you know, has done very principled things on free speech. That's, you know, obviously I'm, I'm not on the left, so I don't agree with a lot of his policy prescriptions on, on uh Probably criminal justice and that was some of the criminal justice stuff. I think you would agree. Very much not yeah. the economic stuff, but I he, he's a great commentator. I've enjoyed watching him have he and he's willing to have conversations with anyone. I think that's a, a big thing that people appreciate about him. I've seen him on like Sean Hannity's show of all places, mm -hmm. um, and he engages in such a friendly way. Such a um, he, he calls everybody brother. Mm -hmm. He has this kind of let's create a family and a fellowship and try to get to the bottom of our disagreements in a in a polite way. And he has made very courageous stances on free speech, on defending the rights for people that he, he, whose views he probably utterly thinks are odious, disagree with, sign statements on behalf of canceled people. Mm -hmm. So I, I have huge respect to the man, uh, yeah, very much so. And he has so. been very and, uh, critical of, Joe, uh, of Barack Obama yeah. in ways that hurt his personal, professional career in academia, and has been critical, been willing to be critical of Joe Biden in the way that very few others have done in this space. He has been singularly focused on economic justice in a way that I think makes people trust him, even if they don't necessarily agree with the ways that he plans to improve the economic um, fate of so many Americans. People felt this way about Bernie, too. Folks who were like small government people looked at Bernie and said, well, even if I don't agree with how he's doing it, I appreciate that there's someone who's 
trying to fight in my corner to make life better for me and not just the 1% and the elites in this country. So I'd be curious to learn more about what it means for him to be running as part of the People's Party. Is this the traditional People's Party or this newer uh, party that was started a few years ago after 2020 by Nick Branna that has had some controversy attached to it? Does this mean that he's running kind of independently outside of the primary context, or is this kind of a labeling that he's going to run as a Democrat technically? Um, there's there's a lot to be discussed, and that has a lot of strategic implications for how this vote goes down. He elevates every debate he's a part of, so I'm glad to see him tossing his hat in the race. As am I. All right, we'll have more rising for you right after this. A new report in the New York Times reveals that President Biden's aides, quote, leave him alone on weekends and shuffle his schedule around to avoid tiring out a, quote, aging president. The outlet, which published the article Sunday, spoke to a Democrat under conditions of anonymity who divulged that the president's age has been a topic of conversation, detailing that at a closed dinner earlier this year. Former Democratic senators and governors, quote, agreed he was too old to run again. Local leaders often call the White House to inquire about his health. Mm. The report comes just days after Biden took a tumble on stage following his commencement address at the Air Force Academy. The New York Times is getting dragged on Twitter for appearing to call into question President Biden's age and fitness to run the country. Many on social media, on the social media platform, blasted the outlet, calling its report embarrassing, slobbering, and not objective. It's interesting to me think? because as I read the article, I thought it went out of its way to be very fair to Joe Biden. It included many quotes from people that said to the extent that he rambles, he's always rambled, to the extent that he's told uh, factually unfactual stories. That's always been the case. He's always been gaff-prone um, to the extent that he seems to be stiff and shuffling. It's not because of any neurological disorder, but because of wear and tear that comes with age. All of those were quotes embedded in this article. Moreover, in the second half, they tried to they, they do turn the focus onto Donald Trump, Donald Trump's age being not that much younger than um, Joe Biden. Uh, the fact that Donald Trump, quote, tipped the scales at 244 pounds and did not exercise, his diet leaned heavily on cheeseburgers and steak. I mean, this is also in the very article that they're right. saying is somehow protective of, or sorry, too hard on Joe Biden. Which is, which is always a silly thing to go after. Like, Trump has been you know, described as an unhealthy man in terms of his weight and his exercise and his eating, but we're really talking about Joe Biden's mental fitness right. and, you know, for you, you can dislike Trump all you want, but he's he sounds the same. He's expressing the same ideas. He's re he responds on the fly to questions. You might not like the answers you get from him if you're a liberal Democrat. You certainly don't. But it's not the same kind of is he aware of what's going on or her surroundings or what that those questions that people have about Joe Biden. It's really questions of different magnitude. And I, I separate that from, again, the fall Anyone can fall, I, I, I agree. Sure. Um, and, and you can be physically frail and elderly, but still totally mentally with it. Obviously, the job of presidency requires some amount of physical fitness because you got to fly around all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a kind of grueling schedule. Um, honestly, I can't imagine subjecting people in their 80s to it, to be honest. I, when, I, when I travel, I'm exhausted. I'm worn out for just like a fraction yeah. of the amount of work-related getting up early and staying up late and following the news and talking to people. It tires me out. And, and uh, at, in, my, in my 80s, I can't imagine doing it. So that, that is an issue. But the main thing is the 
is his does he understand you know is he he's slow to react mm -hmm. but is it all are all the gears turning properly yeah and in his defense it's a mixed bag and the article points this out up top that at the same time that he was complimented for his um, quickness and you know mental faculties while negotiating the debt ceiling crisis you know by Republicans. He was he was got compliments and plaudits for that. Later that day, he tripped and fell. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you know, they in the article discussed the stamina that he had on that secret train trip to Ukraine, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And that was an all-night overnight trip. Right. It juxtaposed him taking the middle of the night calls to deal with the war in Ukraine at the same time that he fumbled the next day in a press conference to remember all of his grandchildren's names. I mean, there's something that's kind of normal and relatable about that. And it is true, as this article points out, that Donald Trump is only four years younger and was the oldest president in history until Joe Biden was elected. And if Donald Trump were to win next year, he would be 82 at the end of his term, yeah. which is older than Biden will be at the end of this term. And Trump doesn't, so Trump doesn't, he, he's smart about this. He knows he doesn't want to make it a question of age too much. So he did a town hall with Sean mm -hmm. Hannity recently um, where he actually went after Sean Hannity a little bit in the town hall. He said, you know, you're too mean to Biden about his age. <laughs> he, he said, you got to be respectful. He kind of, he, huh. he, he, he chided Hannity a huh. little bit for, for really laying into Biden over his age. That's because Trump doesn't really want it to be a question of age because Trump is old as well. And if, if, if age is the issue this all hinges on, that's an argument, not for Donald Trump, but for Ron DeSantis or right. someone else. Right. Uh, so he doesn't really want to make it about age. No, I get that. Look, as someone who used to work for Bernie Sanders, I certainly understand sure. that argument. And it was frustrating at the time because the age gap between Bernie and Biden and uh, Elizabeth Warren yeah. were all just a handful of years, but the media very much tried to make a case out of Bernie Sanders obviously also having had the heart attack, but that his age in particular was disqualifying when it, there was a lot of reasons for us to want to switch the conversation to being about um, one's mental stamina, which has been thrown into question for Joe Biden. Remember, there was a poll uh, a month or so ago that showed that the majority of vote, uh, voters think that Joe Biden is too old to serve. Um, I think it was 60, 68 uh, percent of voters mm -hmm. uh, felt that way, including a large number of Democratic voters. This isn't necessarily just a partisan issue, which is why to so many folks, it is frustrating not to allow there to be some kind of Democratic sure. primary. When I talk about this all the time, even in terms of Congress, in terms of our legislators, the average age has gotten up and up and up and up. And I, I respect our, our, the elderly and our grandparents and great-grandparents' generation, absolutely. But I would not want them, you know, answering very or making very detailed, specific policy and legislative choices with respect to um, tech and many other issue areas where... Uh, where I, I, I struggle to imagine them being really in touch with it. That's, that's a huge problem. Our system seems to, uh, whatever its strengths, a, a, a significant flaw of, of, the, of the system we have is not the parliamentary system, a, a, a primary system, everything we have going on, um, allows people, even at a, a very advanced age now, to just stay in Congress forever, stay in government forever. And I don't think it serves the policy... Uh, I don't think it serves the interests of the American people, but not from a right-left perspective right. at all, just from a, like, is this good government best practices to have people of, of this age? in the, Like, in the private sector, there's when you're losing it, sometimes, right, the board puts pressure to, on you to get out of there, right? Yeah. We don't have that equivalent. 
as long as you're popular with your district or your voters. Yeah. Look, I mean, they, we don't throw people out. We don't term limit people in, in the legislative side of things. Right. And, and it is, it's notable as well that the establishment, anti-establishment, isn't also falling along age lines either. Not it's not the case that the younger candidate no. is the more, I mean, obviously look at Bernie, yeah. look at RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson, who I think are about six months apart, 69, 70 years old. Um, you know, it, it is a Mary little Williams weird. Is 70? Doesn't she look good? She does look good. <laughs> she, she looks great, but that's, that's another big part yeah. of this piece is that there's a perception of age that's sure. going along with um, people's actual fitness and things like that. Bernie was very active. He was a runner. He, you know, he's famously running up and down the halls of Congress and up and down the escalators. But he doesn't present. He presents as an older guy. He doesn't quaff himself in the way that Joe Biden does, or care about the fit of his suits, or you know, present mm -hmm. himself as anything other than somebody's kind of curmudgeonly uh, grandpa. So all of these things are going into the mix. But I do think your central point that there needs to be more engagement with the cognitive concerns. You have local leaders, according to this New York Times report, calling the White House to check up on Biden's ability to do his job. I think it's not unreasonable for that to be a concern to many Americans. Right. I know there are people or at least liberals, right, who've wanted to have mandatory retirement age for, like, court justices, yes. Supreme Court justices. Um, okay, I, under, I understand that sentiment. It's like our legislators, you, I mean, you got to have term limits or something would be the way to do it instead yeah. of an actual age cutoff. Sure. But it is an issue. Yeah. More rising right after this. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey made waves this weekend when he tweeted his support for Democratic presidential candidate Robert Kennedy Jr. on the platform yesterday. Dorsey tweeted a link to a Fox News interview in which Kennedy states that he can beat both President Biden and former President Trump with the comment, quote, he can and will. Subsequently, when he was asked if uh, Jack was endorsing Kennedy or pr just predicting that he would win, he replied both. Mm. Current Twitter head Elon Musk will host Kennedy in a discussion space on Twitter titled Reclaiming Democracy today at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This comes just after Instagram reinstated Kennedy's personal account after previously permanently banning his profile in 2021 over, quote, debunked claims about the coronavirus or vaccines. Kennedy slammed the ban as profoundly uh, undemocrat uh, undemocratic just a few days ago. The account for Kennedy's anti-vaccine organization, the Children's Health Defense, still remains permanently banned from the platform. This news rankled a lot of people. Obviously, Jack, a very high profile, at least previously high profile uh, person as the CEO of uh, Twitter, sure. weighing in in a somewhat unexpected way. Right, The whole narrative of Elon Musk's takeover in the Twitter files is largely that there was a kind of liberal establishment cabal running the enterprise. Jack was at the top of that, although he largely escaped some of the direct criticism from Elon Musk. And here he is coming out endorsing Yes, a Democratic candidate, but an anti-establishment Democratic candidate who's piqued the interest of a lot of conservatives and Trump voters. What do you think? Which has kind of been, like, this is not a new shift for Jack, honestly, mm -hmm. if you've been following his political musings over the year. He was a big fan of Tulsi Gabbard mm -hmm. um, before she was, I think now she's very explicitly associated with the right, but at a time where she was, you know, independent Democrat with some very left views, but some very different foreign policy views. He seems to be very foreign policy motivated in general. Mm -hmm. uh, very uh, privacy. You know, he's a supporter of Edward Snowden and you know those kinds of causes and things. Um, a, a real civil liberties 
left person or the areas where the left and actually libertarians overlap in, mm -hmm. in some degrees. So this actually doesn't surprise me that much. Mm -hmm. um, the hostility, I think, to independent thinkers, to conservatives, et cetera, that it existed on Twitter, as far as we can tell, was not substantially due to policymaking that Jack himself was doing. Mm -hmm. Now, one can say he should have been more involved, making sure it wasn't happening. It seems like he was kind of checked out, mm -hmm. and he, he let the the safety policies kind of run amok and affect free speech under Vijaya Gad, the, who, the trust and safety head. Um, again, totally, still fair to criticize him for not, you know, for being asleep at the wheel. But it seems like if he'd had more involvement, uh, maybe some of those things would be avoided because he himself is kind of a free thinker with a, it does not have views that just slot right into kind of normie mainstream democratic land yeah. as evidenced by this, uh, this endorsement, not just a prediction that RFK Jr. Uh, would do well against both Biden and Trump, but that's a prediction anyone could make without saying it's a good thing, but also yeah. an endorsement of the candidate himself. And if you keep reading into the Twitter thread where he did make that endorsement, you get more insight to his feelings about the Democratic Party. Generally speaking, one user replied to Dorsey's tweet saying, not a chance the DNC allows RFK Jr. to be nominated. To this, he replied, even more reason to support mm -hmm. the candidate. Um, someone else voiced the same concern, saying the DNC would never allow that. Are you kidding? Uh, Jack Dorsey says, true, but they seem, they being the Democratic Party, they seem more irrelevant by the day. I think that that sentiment, like it or not, is an accurate description of what is going on, the energy politically is much stronger in the, in the Republican Party. There's a perception of Republicans fighting for things, regardless of if they're the right things, but fighting for things for their constituents. And the Democratic Party is very much in a defensive mode. They are doing victory laps about the of avoiding the debt ceiling crisis, where they basically had to give up stuff, agree to ending the student loan moratorium, give up some pretty significant things, even though they're not characterizing it that way, in a move that should have been a pro forma, just raising of something that is raised routinely under Republican presidents. They have reneged on any number of promises to their base. The only thing that saved them in midterm seems to have been uh, the Dobbs decision. Donald Trump, recognizing that, isn't even running hard on abortion the way that some of these other more cultural conservatives are. And Democrats, their lack of relevancy is really reflected in the unexpectedly significant appetite for a candidacy like RFK Jr.'s. RFK Jr. is doing something pretty remarkable that it would be a good sign if he were to somehow be, a, I mean, somehow by defeating Joe Biden in the primaries, if he were to become a general election candidate or if he were to, you know, run third party or just run anyway. Uh, he is courting support and getting support from a diverse range of people. Uh, obviously, he's running in the Democratic primary where he's polling at like 19 or 20 or something mm -hmm. percent. That's a significant number of Democrats. He's also doing a lot of alternative and conservative media. He clearly has a lot of conservatives, Republicans, other former Trump supporters who like what he has to say about vaccines and some other subjects. Um, he's courting some libertarian support. I, I see libertarian party people all over my Twitter feed who say they prefer him to all the potential candidates in the mix. Um, and I think he's courting some left support on what he said about Ukraine and subjects like that and foreign policy. So that's a pretty impressive kind of resume he's building. Of course, it's drawing, you know, thunderous condemnation from mainstream media people like Mehdi Hassan, who uh, went after him recently. I think we have uh, some of that to play.
Sadly, there's plenty wrong with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his long-shot presidential bid. Here's just three worrying things among many that you should know about him. First, Robert Kennedy Jr. is one of America's leading anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists. He and his Children's Health Defense Group have spent years amplifying discredited and dangerous nonsense linking vaccines to autism and death. And during the pandemic, he and his group became some of the biggest promoters of anti-COVID vaccine conspiracy theories, making a ton of money off of ridiculous claims that Bill Gates was using microchips to surveil and maybe even starve the American people, and also offensive analogies with the Holocaust. Even in Hitler, Germany, you could, you could cross the Alps into Switzerland. You can hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. I visited in 1962 East Germany with my father and met people who had climbed the wall and escaped. So it was possible. Many died truly, but it was possible. Today, the mechanisms are being put in place that will make it so none of us can run and none of us can hide. So Mehdi goes on to talk about the extent to which the Kennedy siblings are not supporting him, the, the anti-vax stuff. I mean, these are the messages that the mainstream liberal media have been repeating. They don't seem to have had much of an effect on Kennedy's poll numbers. Right. Quite to the contrary, I do think that there's a little bit of this pylon that is illustrating to people exactly why he is the anti-establishment choice in giving energy to this campaign. In, in those remarks that he made, so you should just not make Holocaust analogies in general. I, he did subsequently apologize for a, a kind of careless metaphor there, um, which he should have done. That's just something you should avoid rhetorically. Of course. Absolutely agree. Um, he was talking, as, as you pointed out before we started uh, playing the segment, he was talking about the vast surveillance state that is being put in place, yeah. uh, the ability to track us via tech, the government's uh, encroachment in, into our uh, encroachment into our privacy, mm -hmm. which are very are real and serious mm -hmm. subjects that should not be dismissed. Yes, he should not have made that exact metaphor, but like, let's not get lost in the weeds here yeah, and, 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 and say I, that it's I crazy think, yeah. or conspiratorial to be concerned about how uh, our governments yeah. might surveil us given the technology. And that's a really important point. And folks listening to Kennedy more closely than perhaps Mehdi Hassan is, hear that and then don't trust double down on their distrust of liberal media who, who aren't willing to engage in the substantive criticism, even if they are simultaneously um, pushing back against the choice to use the Holocaust to uh, illustrate that point. Mm -hmm. It's also worth noting that today at 2, when he does the Twitter spaces, he will be joined by Tulsi Gabbard, um, uh, Elon Musk, obviously, Michael Schellenberger, David Sachs, again, um, and a host of others. So it's interesting also to see who he continues to kind of associate himself with politically in a way that for liberals seems like a wink-wink, nod-nod, but maybe I'm not so liberal, but to uh, independent thinkers, uh, or independent sure. voters reads as I'm actually interested in engaging more broadly than just in the establishment Democratic Party sphere. We're also going to have a segment coming up in a little bit that engages with some substantive criticism that RFK Jr. got over the weekend um, relating to some statements about uh, Israel-Palestine, uh, but we'll get to that later and yep. we'll have more rising for you right after this. In 2024, Republican candidate Tim Scott confronted host of ABC's The View, Sonny Hostin, on air. Let's watch. You have indicated that you don't believe in systemic racism. What is your definition of systemic racism? Let me ask, answer the uh, 
question that you've answered asked. Does it ex- or does it even exist yeah. in your mind? Let me, let me uh, answer the question this way. One of the things that I think about, and one of the reasons why I'm on the show, is because of the comments that were made, frankly, on this show, that the only way for a young African-American kid to be successful in this country is to be the exception and not the rule. That is a dangerous, offensive, disgusting message to send to our young people today, that the only way to succeed is by being the exception. I will tell you that if my life is the exception, uh, I can't imagine. But, but I can't it imagine, is. But it's not, actually. Here's, here's, it's been here's 114 my, years. Yeah, so, so the fact of the matter is we've had an African-American president, African-American uh, vice president. We've had two African-Americans to be secretaries of the state. Uh, in my home city, uh, the police chief is an African-American who's now running for mayor. The head of the Highway Patrol for South Carolina is an African-American. Still in, 19, in 1975, um, there was about 15% employment in the African-American community for the first time in the history of the country. It's under 5%. 40% homelessness and 50% of, of African-Americans. 50% of the folks get, in our community. Get 13% make, oh, I, of the population. You had a chance to ask the question. I know that I've watched you on the show that you like people to be deferential and respectful, so I'm going to do the that same thing. True. So here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest the fact of the matter is that progress in America is palpable. It can be measured. And I think we have just a little bit more of that spicy exchange. Take a listen. Measured in generations. I look back at the fact that my grandfather, born in 1921 in Sally, South Carolina, when he was on a, on a sidewalk, a white person was coming, he had to step off and not make eye contact. That man believed then, with some doubt now, in the goodness of America. Because he believed that having faith in God, mm-hmm. faith in himself, and faith in what the future could hold for his kids would unleash opportunities in ways that you you cannot imagine. Every kid today can look, just change the stations and see how much progress has been made in this country. ABC, NBC, CBS, ESPN, CNN, Fox News all have African-American and Hispanic hosts. So what I'm suggesting is that the yesterday's exception is today's So this is a series of arguments that I think I've heard a lot um, from many black conservatives. I had an amazing conversation with uh, Professor Glenn Lowry, who I consider to be a friend on my podcast, in which he made a lot of these similar kinds of arguments. And so I would say just a couple of things. One, there's a conflation between the idea that progress hasn't happened Mm -hmm. and the idea that more progress still needs to happen. Of course, it can be true that black people aren't asked to step off of the side of the road when white people pass by, that we've had a civil rights movement and many, many things have changed for the better since the 1950s or 60s, and also that there exists systemic racism, which he declined to kind of weigh in on specifically or define. And so even if you think systemic racism is very minimal, that it has much less effect, to completely deny it when there's evidence like black-sounding names attached to identical resumes as white-sounding names, get fewer callbacks and study after study. Housing discrimination studies show similar patterns when exactly identically qualified uh, renters are tried to rent at various buildings. I worked for a public service organization in law school that recruited law students, white and black and other law students, to go and mm-hmm. try to rent apartments because we were all identically qualified. We're all the same, you know, academically, we're all in the same law school together, and see the kind of variation in outcomes that still persist. Even if you think it's not overwhelming or shouldn't be the center of someone's political project, and that things have gotten much better, it is difficult to deny that, of course, there's still residual effects of racism out there. And I do think some black conservatives would 
have a better argument if they just said, I do think obviously some stuff exists on the margins, but ultimately I'm proud of this country sure. and we should work toward the better. The problem is if you acknowledge that there's any problem at all, you start to have to put forward policies that address the fact that some people are still being treated differently because of the color of their skin. And politically, conservatives who are the small government party ostensibly, although Ron DeSantis seems to be working to change that, but ostensibly a small government party are unwilling to do that. So you get these kind of arguments that you see here, which I think fly in the face of reality. Well, I think you can... If you, because uh, she asked him how to define systemic racism, and if you define it, if you say that by that I mean, you know, racism that is literally written into the law and the operations of the government, most of, you, know, you might quibble on the margins, I mean, I but most of those, way, yeah. well, right, but he could have said that and, and you know, said that virtually all of those policies have been gotten rid of at the government level, that there's not, it's not legal to have interracial marriage and, and the kind of discrimination that occurred under Jim Crow or literal slavery, all those things that made our country systemically racist have been worked out of our legal system and our laws for the overwhelming part. But obviously people are still impacted by racism and racial prejudice. Mm -hmm. he, could all, he could say that it's not just black people, it's people of all different ethnicities and all sorts of different contexts, um, but that race is still something that holds people back in a variety of ways and we should work to overcome that and work to improve that. And I think there wouldn't really be any conflict over that, right? Yeah, it is confusing. So for That's one, I would, I would say, say I, I would explicitly say that the kind of de jure of racism that you're describing, mm -hmm. the legal discrimination is like definitionally very different from systemic racism. And that the problem is there is there are things that happen that are not, this is a law that says black people can't do that. Even under de jure racism, features like um, policies like redlining, which precluded black people from having access to neighborhoods where there was the kind of real estate growth that really, that created middle-class wealth access to uh, the GI Bill and the ability to get an education from serving in the military that was selectively denied to black people. Those kinds of policies weren't necessarily black people can't do it, but it had the effect mm -hmm. of excluding black people from upper middle class or middle class access the way that so many white families had. So what many people who talk about systemic racism are talking about is, okay, those policies existed and affected people that are relatively young, people who are my grandparents' age, people who are my parents' age. And so what do you do about the fact that now we're living with a legacy of things that happened during our lifetime? And it does, it is frustrating to be having these kind of conversations, which I think most people got in like the 80s today, for him to say, we have a black president and a black VP, when we've had one black president and one black VP after 200 plus years of American history, for him to point to himself as a Congress member or talk about the number of black senators, when in the entire history of the United States of America, there have been 11 black senators. There have been 1,994 senators. There have been 11 black senators. And most of those happened during Reconstruction era. Mm -hmm. So I, it just, it, it's like, what are we even talking about right now? I, I, I'm not bringing this, con I'm not uh, angling to have a conversation about racism. Mm -hmm. I, you know. This I mean, could have Sonny Hostin was, <laughs> but I, it's just so confusing to me because Tim Scott sitting there as obviously an exceptional person saying, I'm not the exception. Yeah, he's a really exceptional person, came from absolutely nothing. Um, and, and you know, he wants to present this affirmative view of America 
as a place where you, you, the progress is occurring, things are getting better on a lot of fronts, that it's, you know, it's an optimistic vision that is occasionally missing. Republicans used to, you know, scream about Democrats left being like unpatriotic, right? Mm -hmm. Hating America. Now you hear some of that, I think, almost more so on the right because they're so mad about you know wokeness and how it's gotten everywhere and how bad it is that you you lose sight of the people that v voters, I, I think, want to hear something positive and want they they love this. Most people like this country. I think it's a good place. They think it's the best country on earth and and want to hear something like what Tim Scott's offering. Not to say there isn't. We don't have a, a way to go. We can't make things better. But this is a yeah, place that has think, gotten so much better yeah. for black people, for all sorts of minority yeah. communities, for all sorts of affinity groups over over the course of the last 80 years, the Tim Scott and his grandfather's and, lifetime. And I would say to Sunny Hostin, what she should say is in response to Tim Scott's initial framing that, well, you're, you guys are telling us that the only way a black person can be successful is to be the exception. No, that's a weird twist of the argument. The argument is, unfortunately, for so many, because of all of the legacy of all of the programs we've been discussing in the past, the reality is that it is harder to access middle-class status, much less your extraordinary status as a congressperson um, and a presidential candidate if you were black versus if you were other kinds of things, if you're poor versus if you're other kinds of things. And the fact that he came up poor and black and succeeded should be not evidence that other people don't need help. And weaponizing one's personalized success to preclude other people from having similar opportunities. I mean, don't you wish your life had been easier even if you did make it through in your Horatio Alger story? That, that is what I would say, that I believe sure. in the promise of America, and don't you want to help more people achieve what you have achieved, given how hard you know that but path is? But I don't is. want to stress, too, and he kind of, he actually did mention it there in his remarks. The, some of the, um, it goes on in schools, uh, some of the DEI stuff, and you know, that whole aspects of white supremacy handout I've mocked six ways to Sunday <laughs> on this show, that like says, right, well, white culture is, you know, whiteness is mm -hmm. hard work and, and individualism and self-improvement, mm -hmm. and that's aspects of whiteness. So you can't, you know, you can't be expected, that's not really your culture, so you can't succeed that way. That messaging to young people, which I think is very pernicious, I'm not saying, it's I, happening everywhere, but it's I, yeah, pernicious it's, and should not happen. And I think that's. What I think it's whack, <laughs> as the kids used to say. But I don't think that it is at all widespread. It's a weird niche academic, maybe DEI thing. And if there's an argument that it shouldn't be allowed to spread, I think that's a perfectly fine argument. But then to try to root some of the uh, dis disparities that exist in the country in language that is new right. or in some kind of cultural practice that reflects that language, which has never been substantiated, at the same time that you don't want to engage at all with the literal laws and policies that have shaped outcomes in the United States of America, that's what feels a little disingenuous, right. I think. But we want to improve those disparities, not throw up our hands and say they can't be fixed. I would love to improve them, but what's the, what kids. is the conservative? This is fundamentally, this is what I got into with Glenn Lowry. I said at some level, even if I were to concede, which I'm not, that the all of the racial disparities that exist could be attributed to some cultural problem. Black people just don't care enough about education or whatever the argument is. No, no, no. I'm no, not, not, not you. I know that you're not I'm saying not, that, but no, I'm saying the opposite of that. No, but arguments yeah. were made. And and so the implication becomes if you don't believe there's systemic racism, if you don't believe there's any holdover from any of these policy effects from slavery, from mm -hmm. the segregation that my parents were born into, right? If you think right. that none of that has any effect on today somehow, but if you believe that and the disparities still exist, then what 
is why, why would you be making that argument? What are the policy implications of that? And I think the line that people don't draw, the circle that people don't close is, well, if it's not the government's fault, I don't have to, it, they don't have to do anything about it. It's innate, the natural state of some people to be less than, lower than other people. I still think it's to the work, government's fault. To less, work less hard and be ignorant and da 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 And therefore, we should cut social programs. And what that ends up doing, because most people on social programs in the United States of America are actually white, most people on food stamps are white, most, it's a 75% sure. white country or whatever it is, um, that is, black people are being used as they have been for decades now as an excuse to cut public policy, social policies, the social safety net, more broadly speaking. And so it really is an, an in run to undo the social safety net that a lot of poor and working class white people end up falling for because, you know, there is this, they call it the wages of whiteness. They call it like, you're, you're told, at least you're better than somebody, so don't fight, you know, why would you align yourself with this group that you're being told you're better than? even though not aligning yourself with that group is causing your life to be worse because they're shutting down swimming pools and cutting public services that you used to enjoy back in a world that was more a politic, a world where the politics catered more to actual working class and poor white people and the segregated social benefits that used to exist in the 1940s and 50s. Well, we will continue talking about this and we'll have more rising in just a minute. The Gray Zone, an independent news outlet, has participated in a Nord Stream expedition and reportedly discovered a clue that was missed by Swedish investigators. Near one of the sites of the blast uh, in September of 2022, the team discovered a diving boot used by U.S. Navy divers. One of the Gray Zone reporters watched a live stream from a drone that was underwater while he was on a ship in the Baltic Sea, and a black and orange diver's boot showed up on the screen, the Gray Zone reports. Now, according to the Gray Zone, a model that closely resembles this boot is used by U.S. Navy and commercial divers, and Ukrainian Navy divers have also reportedly been spotted wearing similar boots. Great that the U.S. is sharing all its gear with the Ukraine. Uh, the boot was previously reported to investigators, but was not collected, and knowledge of it was not made public, according to the Gray Zone. Now, editor-in-chief of the Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal, joins us to discuss. Welcome, Max. Thanks for having me. What is the significance of this discovery? Lay it out for us. Well, this is not the only discovery that's been made by this expedition. This is just the first in what will likely be a multi-part investigation, a small expedition on a boat called the Baltic Explorer led by a Swedish engineer named Eric Andersson uh, embarked to the sites of the Nord Stream pipelines. I believe it's the first independent expedition to the uh, blast sites where $23 billion pipelines were blown up in the worst act of industrial sabotage, severing Germany from its supply of cheap energy from Russia in an obvious attack on both Russia and Germany. Um, and we managed at the Gray Zone to get a reporter on that boat, to get a seat, to get him a seat on that boat. His name is Jeffrey Brodsky. And they sent drones underwater at the blast sites and found, among other things, uh, a boot. It is a diver's boot, an outer boot. We confirmed it to be a Thor outer boot. This is a boot that has been seen in use by U.S. Navy divers. Um, an, a similar boot called the Viking has also been seen in use. Uh, Ukrainian uh, divers have been seen with similar boots. It has also 
been used by commercial divers, especially in contaminated areas. And so we determined that this was a clue that should at least be looked at. We're committed to getting all the evidence out there because the investigations, the official investigations by Sweden, for example, have not made their findings public and it's been eight months. So we've learned that Nord Stream 2, the company that owns these destroyed pipelines, had actually reported the boot to Swedish investigators. We also learned through a source that Swedish divers had never even visited this site, so it can't be one of their boots. But the question is, why didn't the Swedish investigative team show any interest in this? Are they even interested in learning who the perpetrators are? Uh, it's it, it's sort of a, seems like a major oversight. Yeah, I can definitely see someone making the case that multiple types of people of various national origins have access to these boots, that there is reporting at this point that it could have been, uh, you know, Ukrainian nationals, although there's still a denial that, it, that the Ukrainian government was involved. And so the boot is not that much of a red flag, except for it is interesting finding out that there was knowledge of the boot, but a failure to disclose the boot, which really does raise the question, what else might not have been disclosed and how thorough were these investigations that we're supposed to be relying on as having, um, you know, uh, cleared the U.S. from be, uh, being involved? So what what else? First of all, I, I would love to hear a little bit more about how you gained access to this expedition and also anything else that you learned that you think might be more significant than the discovery of the boot in and of itself. Well, the uh, engineer, Eric Anderson, gained access uh, through permits uh, by, by notifying Swedish and Danish maritime authorities about the expedition, and he gained the relevant permits through the Swedish Defense Authority, which also raises questions about why no one else bothered to do this. He then sent drones underwater and filmed the blast sites. And so I think there's more coming. Uh, hopefully, uh, there will be more coming with expert analysis on the size of the blasts, how much explosives were possibly used, uh, the placement of the explosives, and this will be highly relevant to making an attribution about who the perpetrators are. And right now, in my view, the most likely perpetrator is the United States, as put forward by Seymour Hersh, um, who speculated that massive uh, amounts of some kind of C4 explosives were planted in the mud below the pipelines by U.S. Navy divers in coordination with Norway, and this you know, attack was celebrated by everyone from Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland to uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, who called it a major economic opportunity. The U.S. liquid natural gas industry is celebrating this enormously. Um, so they seem to be the most likely perpetrators. As you said, Ukrainians are also suspected. But what's important here is that the whole media, with so much more resources than us, has neglected to do this. And the official investigators have kept their findings from the public and are not scraping up these clues from the ocean floor. When we came across the boot with the drone, it almost seemed absurd that it was there. Um, and then even more absurd that no one had bothered to collect it and examine it. So let's let this play out. And hopefully this will actually force the official investigators to actually do, do some work. The problem is, they might wind up biting the hand that feeds them as members of NATO. Pointing the finger at the U.S. seems to be off limits for these vassal states.
The mainstream media has been slowly pivoting away from, oh, why would Russia do this, you know, realizing that that made no sense, to yeah. a kind of, well, I guess we'll never know. Um, it's a mystery, but who really cares? Is it that important? Um, do, you, do you predict any kind of revisiting of that approach, you know, in the face of, of mounting evidence that these statements by U.S. officials that, right, not just celebrating it after it happened, but predicting that something like this would occur, a vague kind of menacing threat that something like this would occur. Right. Um, you know, when does that, <laughs> when, when does th that combination of all those factors draw some mainstream attention? Yeah, especially from the German mainstream media. I mean, it's their economy that's on the chopping block here, and they don't really have an economic plan B. So where is the outrage? Why, is German, why are German officials so circumspect, if not reticent, about the worst act of industrial sabotage attacking their critical infrastructure? And so that's why I think this independent expedition is so necessary in forcing the issue and gathering as many clues as possible, even in an examining, hopefully in examining and possibly determining what type of explosive was used to make an attribution, uh, because we can no longer trust even the target of this attack, the German government or the German media that seems to be acting as its lackey. We can't trust them. So in independent media means going out there gathering clues, gathering evidence, and putting it out there for experts to analyze. And this was just the first step towards, I think, uh, in a much longer process in examining something that uh, should never, ever have been allowed to happen in the so-called rules-based order put forward by Tony Blinken. It kind of makes it clear that the Biden administration is saying, we make the rules and you follow our orders. Yeah, well, just one last question from me. Is there any um, commentary from diving experts or the like who could explain why it is that a boot would be, become dislodged, if there would be any implications for, I don't know, pressurized suits in a deep dive or anything like that that would help to explain how something like this happened? Is it more likely that a boot just got knocked off a boat? You know, how does, how does a diving boot end up near the scene in the, in the first place. Well, I, c I can see a lot of the pro-Ukrainian trolls are accusing us of planting the boot. Mm. <laughs> um, but things happen. It was found very close to a blast site. Northern Diver, the manufacturer of the Thor Overboot, has essentially confirmed that it is theirs. Um, and they do sell to militaries as well as commercial divers. Um, and I'm looking forward to the diving community debating this. But prior to us putting this out, there was no such debate. And that's the fault of the official investigators who are keeping the facts from the public in order to apparently sweep, the re sweep this attack under the ocean floor. Mm, an unlikely Cinderella story here. Thanks for joining us to discuss, <laughs> Max. An unlikely Little Mermaid story. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising for you right after this. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was asked about his deleted tweet in support of Roger Waters' controversial anti-Nazi protest last week. Let's watch that. 
Mr. Kenny, um, a lot of people are confused about the tweet storm. I call it the tweet heard around the world. A couple of tweets were put up in support of Roger Waters and then taken down. Do you want to give us a little explanation of why they were taken down and also your stance on Israel and Palestine? Yeah, I, uh, I tweeted that, um, I made the tweet applauding Roger Waters courage in opposing the COVID mandates and the, um, and the Ukraine war. I did not, I was unaware of his position on Israel. And when I learned that, I, I immediately took it down. My position of Israel is that I support Israel. I support, my family has a long relationship with Israel. I support its right to exist and its right to protect its security. And the Palestinians? And, and a, a humane outcome and a recognition ultimately of the aspirations of the Palestinian people is important for everybody. You got a lot of pushback for that response. Kennedy was also asked about his stance on Cuba. Mr. Kennedy, recently on an interview, you said that your uncle has more streets named after him in Latin America than any other president that's uh, held office. What is your position on Cuba? Are you willing to block, uh, to get rid of the blockade on day one? Yes. Joining us now to weigh in is our rising panel. Max Blumenthal is editor at The Gray Zone, and Joel Rubin is partner at Democracy, uh, Democracy Partners. Welcome to Rising to both of you. Good to see you. Thanks so much, Bree. All right, I'll start with you, Max. As I'm sure you're aware, a lot of the left was critical of his statements on several levels. First and foremost, do you think it's credible that RFK Jr. didn't realize what he was offering Roger Waters support for when Roger Waters, of course, was embroiled in a controversy about his choice to have a satirical anti-fascist costume during his concert that was reminiscent of a Nazi armband? If, if that is why everyone was talking about Roger Waters and which what led to RFK Jr.'s support of Roger Waters on Twitter that was later retracted, what do you make of his recharacterization of why he supported him and his generalized comments there on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Yeah, I don't find it credible. I know, I know Bobby Kennedy Jr. He knows better. Mm. And I don't, I, I've been supportive of him uh, in, as a candidate who can actually open up space to discuss issues that are frozen out by an undemocratic Democratic Party. Um, and I don't think this is credible. He knows that Roger Waters is the world's most famous supporter of liberating Palestinians from open air prisons like the Gaza Strip, hideous refugee camps like the like Sabra and Shatila, and 70 plus years of continuous ethnic cleansing. He has to know that. Roger Waters actually never opposed COVID mandates, so I don't even know what he's talking about there. It appears with this walk back that he has fallen under pressure from one of the most powerful and undemocratic forces opposed to the First Amendment in the US, and that is the Israel lobby. And it feeds the perception when Bobby Kennedy Jr. marches in the Israel Day Parade with Shmuley Botia, a far-right former reality show race hustler whose entire salary is paid by the Likudnik Adelson family, that he's not actually an anti-establishment candidate, that he is uh, fallen under the sway of far-right Likudnik oligarchs who favor bombing Iran. And this is troubling to the grassroots supporters, including the grassroots base of the Democratic Party that he's running in. For the first time, we've seen a Gallup poll show that more Democrats support Palestine 
over Israel. I mean, it's a bad way of framing the question, but it shows that he's out of step with the grassroots base and fuels the perception that the Israel lobby is even controlling this outsider campaign. Hmm. Joel, how would you respond to that? Sure. I mean, Robbie, first and foremost, I agree with Max that it's not credible. Uh, I think Bobby Kennedy clearly was backtracking on a position that he was fully aware of uh, regarding Roger Waters and Waters' anti-Semitism and uh, support for uh, positions on Israel that uh, ran, run antithetical, quite frankly, to human rights. Uh, he's talking about displacing uh, Jews from the state of Israel in order to achieve peace. That's not peace. That's uh, a humanitarian crisis that he's advocating for. And, and I think also it's very important to note that Bobby Kennedy's family history and the Kennedy family history in support of Israel and, and uh, Jewish self-determination is real. I actually think uh, at some point, though, we do have to listen to the candidate and maybe it's a, a, a change uh, from the tweet. But I actually think he was sincere in his position. I think it was strong that he said he supports uh, human rights and, and, and peace for the Palestinians, a state for Palestine, uh, uh, quite frankly, uh, as well within that. And, uh, you know, he, he's not credible in the backtrack, but I think we have to look at the voice and the voice is saying something eminently reasonable. And it's pointing out that Roger Waters and what Waters is saying and how he's doing it uh, not only is offensive, but even the, the German Jewish community I found it deeply anti-Semitic. Uh, he's up there shooting uh, pig balloons with stars of David on it. Uh, nobody uh, can argue that that's nothing but uh, adding fuel to the fire of, of hatred of Jews. Max, I want you to weigh in on the idea of the underlying substance of what Roger Waters is doing at his concert. Is it, in fact, uh, anti-Semitic, as Rabbi Shmuley characterized uh, it on Twitter? I just want to read this quote into the record. Uh, Rabbi Shmuley tweeted out a picture of himself with RFK Jr. over the weekend, saying, Bobby told me he had no idea that Waters was a vicious anti-Semite, and when he studied the issue and the facts, he immediately deleted the tweet, I believe Bobby, and I thank him for his repudiation of Waters. What do you make of that characterization of, uh, of, of Roger Waters? Well, it, it's amazing to see someone as forceful and brave on so many issues as Bobby Kennedy Jr. allowing a discredited race hustler like Shmuley Botiak to put words in his mouth. Um, and it really emphasizes how powerful the Israel lobby is. Uh, but to the point about Roger Waters, he's performing The Wall. This is a 43-year-old rock film that is possibly the most famous rock film in history. And what he's performing there in his concerts, which he has been doing across the United States with no complaint, is mocking a fascist demagogue. He's paying tribute to Anne Frank in his performances. The problem for the Israel apartheid lobby is that he's also paying tribute to Shireen Abu Akleh, the journalist who was killed in the line of fire deliberately, apparently, by Israeli forces. And they cannot allow a universal interpretation of the Holocaust to include all people. So they have to demonize Roger Waters and show how unhip and uncool and out of it they are, that they don't even know what the wall is. Um, and I, I really feel sorry for, for Bobby Kennedy Jr. to be wrapped up in this and to allow himself to become kind of a hostage. So I want to extend an invitation to Bobby. If you can suffer through the likes of Crystal Ball lecturing you on the science, then you could join me live at the Gray Zone for an open and civil discussion about what I've witnessed 
for years reporting from behind the Israeli apartheid walls around the Gaza Strip in the West Bank. And let's talk about this issue openly. Let's talk about the ethno-supremacist ideology and the settler colonists injected into the heart of historic Palestine in an open way, because that's what your supporters want. Joel, do you not recognize any part of what Roger Waters is doing as satire? Well, uh, first of all, uh, regarding Pink Floyd, uh, it's not very hip. It's it's uh, from my generation. I, I'd like to think maybe I'm hip at some level, but it, it's it's pretty pretty old music. And, and I I do see satire. And, then why level, aren't you familiar you know, pretty, with it? Pretty, <laughs> I'm extraordinarily familiar with it. What I'm not uh, comfortable with in any way, shape, or form. And I was in Germany recently talking about anti-Semitism uh, in Germany uh, using Nazi symbology. Uh, using a pig with a Star of David on it and then shooting it down. Uh, I think it, it, it's pretty clear that when the Jewish community that's in the location where that concert is taking place says, this is offensive, we don't like this, this helps uh, uh, promote extremism, you got to kind of take them at their word. But Joel, uh, and why, 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 why must, that? Wait, wait, wait. Why, well, the pig also we contains have... the cross and the Islamic crescent on it, and, it's a, and, and Roger Waters is not shooting it. Um, and I don't think it's a representation it, 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 of organized religion. The context of Roger Waters is on Israel. The context of Roger Waters in Israel is very clear. He opposes the state of Israel's existence. He wants to do boycotts. As a Jewish and exclusivist I'm, state. I, and, and Max, you know what? I'm a strong supporter of peace between Israel and the Palestinians. that have been for decades. And uh, I think that we should get there. I actually think if the Israeli street was calling for boycotts like there was in South Africa and the, the hundreds of thousands of protesters protesting for democracy right now. If that's what they're calling for, I think you would see an elevated call for it as well here uh, in the United States. But they're not. Uh, his position is not about supporting peace. His position is about eliminating the state of Israel. And that, quite frankly, is a, a pretty important but context when looking at what he's doing with the pig. Let's, let's, let me raise this one question, though, because I think this is important. So many leftists have been going back and yeah. forth about the two uh, non-Biden candidates that are in the race, Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. Marianne Williamson came under fire from some statements supportive of a two-state solution, because it does seem that there's been some shift, a, a shift where there's a recognition that because of the territorial realities that exist today, there was not enough left for there to be an independent, uh, contiguous uh, Palestinian state, which leads people to ask what kind of one single state is equitable and not an apartheid state and doesn't have unequal laws for Jewish citizens versus non-Jewish citizens. And so when people, Joel, make the argument that, as you've said, Israel should not exist, another person would characterize that, as Max has done, as that there should be a state, whatever it's called, Israel or what have you, but that doesn't make uh, your status as a Jewish person Endow, endow, endow you with more rights than everybody else in the country in a way that is currently unequally playing out for Palestinians and other non-Jews in Israel. So what do you make of that as a, as a, as a policy perspective? And do you think that is categorically yeah. anti-Semitic, yeah. Joel? Well, where I'm saying with categorically anti-Semitic is telling the Jewish people that the right to self-determination is an independent, sovereign people uh, does not belong to, to them or to us, that Jews uh, somehow should be singled out as not being allowed to have an independent state that is uh, Jewish in character uh, and a majority of Jewish citizens. That's part Just a. like part white B, Christians to, in the to your, U.S. To, uh, to your, to your, to your violently question, demographically to your, to your, to your, to your state. Hold on in a minute, Max. To, to, getting, to getting to Bree's question, Max, 
uh, to, to Bree's question, you're absolutely right, Bree. Without a doubt, this occupation is way past overdue. Uh, without a doubt, there needs to be a two-state solution. Without a doubt, the settlement enterprise has encroached upon Palestinian territories that are preventing a feasible, practical, physical separation that enables the Palestinians who want their own state to have their own state. And that's where a real fight, the real tension is right now inside of Israel. There's a real tension clearly in the United States where the majority of American Jews, we support uh, a peace process, a peace outcome. Uh, it's not, it's, uh, this government in Israel is not moving in that direction deeply problematic. But that doesn't mean that eliminating the state of Israel as a majority Jewish state must be the, the, the way to resolve it. And, and, and the point of history on this, when there was no state in between the, Israel, the Jews and the Palestinians before 1948, and they lived sort of under British mandate and with each other, there was constant civil war. Uh, th that is not a recipe for peace. What a recipe for peace is, is an actual agreement between the two sides. That's what we need to be fighting for, not eliminating one of the sides. We're going to have to go in a minute, but I want to give you the last word, Max. Well, Joel and I are extremely privileged American Jews who have two countries, thanks to Israel's settler colonial project, while the Palestinians I met who are caged for the rest of their lives in the Gaza Strip have no country, and it's because they are not Jewish, and the state of Israel as it currently exists is dedicated to violently demographically engineering a Jewish demographic majority, something that no Jewish American would permit from white Christians in the United States. What Joel calls the destruction of Israel is actually yeah. the inclusion of Palestinians and a binational state with equality for all. That is what he's, he's equating democracy with destruction. So what does that say? about the character of the state of Israel? And what does it say about those who are attacking Roger Waters? It says they are fundamentally opposed to democracy and they support, in the, no, they, in the words of Hakeem Jeffrey, they support Israel to, yeah, today, sure. tomorrow, and forever. He was essentially citing George Wallace on segregation. Hmm. Well, fascinating APAC project, exchange Hakeem between Jeffries between both of you in the spirit of max blumenthal i invite both of you to continue this conversation on bad faith totally. podcast but we have to leave it it's there important. thank you to thank you to both of you we're rising after this In a story published over the weekend, the New York Times reported former CNN president Jeff Zucker has persistently blasted the network's new chief, Chris Licht, who's overseen the embattled major news network as it continues to lose ratings and viewership. And apparently, he's also leaked information about the network's internal operations to the press. Last February, CNN pushed its former president, Jeff Zucker, out and replaced him with Chris Licht. The network determined Zucker failed to follow proper protocol in disclosing a relationship with a subordinate, which he did not. Zucker isn't the only former employee who seems to be zeroing in on Lick's plight at CNN. Brian Stelter, who recently exited the network, reposted a story published in The Atlantic tearing into Lick's struggling leadership. Last year, Atlantic writer Tim Alberta was granted access to CNN's operations and wrote the 15,000-word article dissecting the meltdowns behind the scenes. The Hill reported today that Lick addressed the Alberta piece, writing, quote, I know these past few days have been very hard for this group, and I fully recognize that this news cycle and my role in it overshadowed the incredible week of reporting that we just had, distracted from the work of every single journalist this at this organization. And for that, I am sorry.
So apparently, you know, there was this call this morning um, where he told staffers that he didn't recognize himself in that 15,000-word piece that was published in The Atlantic on Friday. Uh, and, you know, it would be interesting to hear more reflection on why exactly that was, why he granted this reporter such access over the course of, uh, I think, a, a substantial amount of time. The Atlantic piece opens with him telling the reporter that he, quote, believes th the media has absolutely, I believe, learned its lesson with respect to covering Trump. The reporter acts with surprise. And as we reflect on how CNN has made certain choices with the CNN town hall, which I think has gotten flack from kind of both sides of the thing, what is he imagining the lesson learned actually is? He says in this, in the Atlantic piece, uh, I know that Trump is playing us, at least people in my organization, we've had discussions about this, we know we're getting played, so we're going to resist it. Did the CNN town hall seem to reflect, if, even if that's not your politics, does, does that reflect an understanding of how to avoid getting played by Donald Trump? Yeah, clearly there have been personality changes at CNN. It, Don Lemon has exited. Brian Stelter has exited. He has changed literally who is working there in some cases. But the content and the commentary with respect to everything and with respect to Trump doesn't seem that different to me. Uh, I was watching over the weekend, the last few days, right? It was wall-to-wall -wall coverage of this document scandal, which I, I, it's not that I think it's a nothing burger, but again, I think the focus on some procedural error Trump might have committed uh, is overshadowing bigger, like, foreign policy questions. Again, going for the, go, re relying on law enforcement people to say, yes, this is how Trump is going down. He will defeat, be defeated mm -hmm. in this very specific legal context. We'll get him on this, as if, like, that's the, the thing that's really important to the people of America mm -hmm. is the, oh, Trump didn't, you know, file, didn't remove the book from the filing cabinets the correct way. Again, I'm not trying to minimize the important whatever, but it, it's, it's that focus, focusing on that is, is what CNN throughout the Trump presidency did, is focused on things like that. So, and maybe that's fine. Maybe that's what the viewers want, but it's not different. Yeah. I don't know that he's changed the, uh, again, the, the editorial direction of what the talent thinks, which would be very hard to do. Like, can you imagine stepping in and telling Anderson Cooper and Jake Tapper and everyone else that, like, you will substantively, substantively change the way you practice journalism? I, I can't imagine well, him pulling I, that off. <laughs> I don't, I can't imagine effectively causing them to do that heel turn because it's not authentically who they are. Right. But I can't imagine saying, here are the different kinds of guests you need to start having on your show and engaging in debates and having your views challenged by folks whose views more closely mm -hmm. aligned with what our audience actually thinks. They haven't done that. Right. And, and I do think, look, over on the right, I think that establishment networks are establishment networks and they largely talk about issues that are right. not germane to the public's interest. There's very little talk about poverty, real wages, um, housing crisis, et cetera, at least not from a lens that's approachable as opposed to um, you know, the, the New York yeah. Times insert reporting on uh, how to shop for houses in the Hamptons or whatever. However, um, on the right, you do get a narrative that says things like, we want to end the war in Ukraine. Look how, how much we're spending there versus the lack of domestic spending at home. Now, are Republican electeds interested in actually using that money on domestic spending? No, their record in Congress and their efforts at cutting domestic spending in the uh, debt ceiling negotiations indicates otherwise. However, they are still engaging in that kind of narrative that I think galvanizes audiences more than talking about the kind of procedural and legal 
rigmarole that's going around with Donald Trump. So it, it, to me, there is a clear path. The question is, are they ever willing to take that kind of populist opening because of conflicts with advertisers or their genuine mm -hmm. ethics and politics that are very establishment? Right. And there's this mistake of thinking, well, we ought to just be more neutral with respect yeah. to Republicans and with respect to Trump. And But I don't... It's not like America is full of people who are neutral, right? Yeah. America is full of people with some strong convictions. These convictions don't always fall so neatly onto a right-left spectrum. And some of these convictions... Some, some people self-identify as Republicans but have some convictions on economic issues, like you like to point out, that are, are actually Democrat or even further to the left than that. And some people who identify as Democrat, when you talk to them, actually have convictions on social issues or something that are to the right of, of what their Democratic representatives on cable news would have to think about things. So it's not, it's not necessarily that, like, greater neutrality, but just be, being more in touch with what, with what the viewers you want to cultivate actually think. Now, maybe these networks only have viewers who are, you know, the highly educated liberal elites who want exactly what they're giving, in which case, I don't know, why rock the boat? Why, why change well, things up? Well, it's interesting. If you read um, Batyangar Sargon's book, Bad News, she has some analysis about the class composition of various TV audiences. And while people draw some conclusions about um, left-leaning audiences being more elite, what the overall picture is is that it's all relatively more affluent people that are consuming right. all of these products. I mean, the con con more conservative-leaning Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, okay, those are very affluent people who are reading those as well as people who are watching CNN and MSNBC. So, I mean, there is this question about whether or not the appetite that more working-class people who are listening to Joe Rogan and alternative media ever are going to be interested in what's happening on, on the television. But she also makes this other interesting point. I saw her uh, the other day. Uh, on, I think, Fox saying, in response to the idea of Jamie Dimon running for president, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, saying, you know what, he thinks, so many liberals think, so many mainstream establishment figures think that what we really need is an economically, um, like, a, like a socially liberal, economically, economically conservative person to run. That's what they think. Like me. <laughs> yeah, you would you, you I'd be the only Dimon. person voting for that. <laughs> but well, I'm the, not gonna, no, I'm not going to vote for some that's, that's the liberal, Jeffrey Epstein that's the entangled. Uh... I mean, liberals have been doing neoliberalism hand and fist with mm -hmm. Republicans, cutting the social safety net, pursuing conservative economic policy, passing NAFTA, shipping jobs overseas. That has been a bipartisan effort. Bipartisanship is a word that everyone should be afraid of the United States of America. And that is their solution to every problem. But Batia's point is that what there's a real appetite for, like it or not, is economic populism, which, again, no party is offering. It's what made Bernie Sanders so popular as a candidate, combined with a either Social, more of a social conservatism, or I would more frame it as social normalcy, like a normie attitude towards social issues, where it's not necessarily that everybody is enthusiastic about the pink-haired Oberlin kid doing X, Y, and Z, but that is not the focus of politics. And there has been an effort by both parties historically to make social issues the focus of po politics because neither party wants to do economic populism. And so is that candidate going to emerge? Is that someone like RFK Jr.? And are the mainstream news organizations going to realize they have to appeal not to this imaginary person in their head, but to a very real Obama, to Trump, to Bernie, to RFK voter? Mm -hmm. That's what they have to reckon with. What I, what I, if I was Chris Licht, what I'd be wondering is, are the only people who are ever going to, the people who watch my show are pink-haired Oberlin grads, and that's the only people who are going to watch my network. So then why would, so then even deviating from that would just make things worse. 
even mean, though there's not a, it's not a huge audience for that. But like you said, like who is who is going to come to CNN? Who's going to come to MSNBC? For the first time, they should be throwing money. The way that some of these conservative um, shows are throwing money at is Tucker Carlson going to come? Is Steven Crowder going to come? Mm -hmm. Like trying to attract this kind of talent. If I were Chris Licht, I know people are going to roll their eyes at this, but I'd be trying to say, can I get Jimmy Dore to do regular segments? Can I get Russell Brand to do regular segments? Can I get Glenn Greenwald to come on and do regular segments or have a show? Because that is where the energy is. And those yeah. people are popular because they have figured out how to channel that anti-establishment angst, which is absolutely absent from any of these mainstream cable news shows. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. More Rising in just a minute. FBI Director Christopher Wray will finally reveal a document allegedly containing proof of Joe Biden's bribery crimes to House Republicans today. Wray, however, will redact information revealing the document sources, uh, the document sources identity, rather. This according to NBC News. The document in question, an FD-1023 form, allegedly describes a criminal scheme that took place when Biden was vice president involving millions of dollars in exchange for policy decisions. Ray will bring the document to Capitol Hill to show to only Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer and Ranking Member Jamie Raskin. The FBI had originally asked the congressman to view the paper at bureau headquarters instead. Now Raskin, a Democrat, slammed his colleagues over their threat to hold Director Ray in contempt during a TV appearance yesterday. Let's watch that. Really interested in is in holding the FBI director in contempt, not in getting a document that they've already seen. And, you know, I don't know what this document is because the majority has closed us out, the Democrats uh, on the committee. They are uh, no longer respecting a bipartisan agreement that the committee's had for the last several Congresses. You have no idea what's in it? Well, there have been published reports uh, which suggest that it has to do with Ukraine. That was a period, remember, when Rudy Giuliani was running around with a Russian agent who uh, later was found to be so by the Treasury Department, Trump's Treasury Department, um, and he was waiving different kinds of documents. Attorney General Barr, Trump's own attorney general, was so skeptical that he created uh, a panel to look at all of this information, saying you've got to take the Ukraine stuff with a grain of salt. So I think it probably has to do with Ukraine and allegations that went nowhere. In other words, this was looked at by the Trump Justice Department, and I think they ended all of it in August with no prosecutions, no indictments, and they're going back to recycle these unfounded accusations. Yeah, this is, this is fascinating. So back in May, um, Comer said he believed this, this record that was coming out today contains, quote, a precise description of how the alleged criminal scheme was employed, as well as its purpose. If it is something short of that, then Republicans are going to have to deal with another one of these kind of media cycles that winds up in nothing. But the way that this has been described suggests that there is a there there. Obviously, we'll find out very shortly now. The White House has pushed back. Ian Sams said a couple of days ago, this is this uh, silly charade by Chairman Comer is yet another reminder that his so-called investigations are political stunts not meant to get information, but to spread thin innuendo and falsehoods to attack the president. He's already admitted this isn't about uncovering facts, but about trying to hurt the president's poll numbers. So the only question left is how long he will waste time, energy, and taxpayer dollars to support this effort. 
maybe the, the timeline runs out today. You know, what do you think about the possible political implications that we're going to find out later today? Yeah, I mean, hurting Biden's poll numbers, if that's a consequence of legitimate information that we obtain, is not a is not like an illegal thing for Republicans yeah, to do. Yeah, it can do. be both. It uh, can be both, uh, <laughs> you know, politically advantageous and the truth. Exactly. And so I, you know, they have promised Republicans in their pitch to take back the House had promised very conservative voters in, in their people, the people who elected those people to be in the House, um, to investigate. Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, potential corruption allegations. Now, obviously, nothing has come of this so far that is so consequential into either Joe Biden or Hunter Biden in terms of corruption, in terms of bribery. This document does exist. They're redacting parts of it. Mm -hmm. So there, there is something sensitive in there. You know, they want to protect the privacy of the person who brought it forward. I think it's absolutely um, something that should be reviewed by James Comer at a minimum. And then he should make an informed decision about whether you know, okay, is he satisfied by what he sees and how it's handled, or does it need to go somewhere from that? Like, that's going to be up to him yeah. to decide. And there, there could be something there. Just because the Trump people looked at it doesn't really mean, and, and, and didn't, you know, what Raskin was saying there didn't go any further than that. Well, it doesn't necessarily tell you anything because, A, it could be that they were, they didn't have all the information or they were, at the time, there wasn't, it didn't all come together, or they were incompetent, or yeah. what Trump himself has alleged is that you know the people working inside the bureaucracy, even of his own administration, were hostile to the to Trump and the Trump project. This is the whole kind of deep state idea, and so maybe we're not properly motivated actually to delve into potential Biden corruption. Yeah. Um, now we we don't want to be the boy who cries wolf here, where like they say, oh, there's so much corruption, it's so pathological, so evident, and then even highly motivated partisan people like the Republican House people can't find it or, or can't actually summon enough to get it over the finish line. So it's about time to, to put up or shut up here. Yeah, I, I agree with that analysis. Now, from the uh, criticism of the Democrat side of this coin, it is frustrating to watch people like Raskin give these interviews that don't seem to engage at all with the reasons even regular nonpartisan folks have been skeptical of what's been going on with the Biden family, particularly in Ukraine. Um, you have uh, Hunter Biden and his organization taking in $11 million between 2013 and 2018 from work in the region. You have Joe Biden as vice president being appointed specifically to overseeing that particular region from a political perspective. You have evidence like the Victoria Nuland call where we know how much America was involved in changing this political state of play in Ukraine itself. So the idea that there could be influence peddling in the region, it hardly is unthinkable, right? If anything, the, the arrows are all pointing in a, in a very suggestible direction. That's not obviously mm -hmm. conclusive proof of anything at all. But to not engage with the substantive skeptic, reasons for the skepticism that conservatives have and instead just say, well, Rudy Giuliani was running around with someone nefarious as well, seems to me to be exactly the kind of smoke and mirrors that makes me more skeptical that there is something that isn't fully being oh, revealed 100%. here. It's such a cop-out to point at Rudy Giuliani and say, well, there, there can be nothing to see here because he was... Uh, and, and I agree, like, he 
was up to very shady, right. sketchy things. Um, uh, Trump's whole initial impeachment was largely due to, I think, taking bad advice from Giuliani on how mm -hmm. they could use this Ukrainian uh, situation with the judge to get something that would be politically advantageous to Donald Trump. That was a Giuliani scheme. Um, Giuliani obviously did Trump no favors whatsoever during the course of the election 2020 litigation. Um, I, I think routinely causing the Trump, uh, causing the President Trump to believe that there was something to you could get more votes or the the, the Dominion or the voting systems had gone wrong, putting kind of wild ideas out there right. with that were evidence-free that made the whole thing look even more ridiculous. Right. So sure, but that doesn't answer the question of what Joe Biden was doing, of what yeah. Hunter Biden was doing. Re regretfully, I suspect it is the case that whatever kind of influence peddling may or may not have been happening, at very least, the inflated salary that Hunter Biden was being paid at the time, I'm, I, I have difficulty justifying that. Mm -hmm. outside of his relationship to his father, even if there's not he was, something formally illegal. And he was illegal. seeking these relationships based on the idea that he had access right. to his dad. Right. So, you know, I, I, I suspect, based on the way the world works, mm -hmm. that it is true that both sides kind of do this sort of thing. We were very critical, or the Democrats are very critical of Donald Trump's choice to put his children and children-in-law in positions of power in the White House. It was a whole nepotism smorgasbord over there, and that was inappropriate. And I do think that when I hear what Raskin was saying in that clip, it sounds a little like, well, everybody does it. And another one of these, it's a big club and you're not Absolutely. in it sorts of stories, which even if you are left-leaning or a Democrat or what have you, the fact of it being pervasive and being weaponized politically in this instance, I don't think should lend people not to be curious about getting to the root of this kind of corruption, if it does in fact exist in this case. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have more rising right after this. MSNBC's Chuck Todd will step down from Meet the Press in the coming months, and NBC's co-chief White House correspondent, Kristen Welker will become the new host. Now let's hear what Chuck Todd had to say in his announcement during a broadcast yesterday. This is going to be my final summer here at Meet the Press. It's been an amazing, nearly decade-long run. I'm pretty, really proud of what this team and I have built over the last decade, and frankly, the last 15-plus years that I've been here at NBC, which also includes my time as political director. I've lo loved so much of this job, helping to explain America to Washington and explain Washington to America. When I took over Meet the Press, it was a Sunday show that had a lot of people questioning whether it could still have a place in the modern media space. Well, I think we've answered that question and then some. We've taken Meet the Press from a single Sunday show to a distinct and important political franchise. According to NBC, Todd plans to remain at NBC in a new role as chief political analyst. Mm. All right. Is this indicative of the kind of shakeups we've seen in an effort to improve market share at these companies? Do you think this is just a personnel change, and will it have any kind of significant impact on the credibility of the news, et cetera? I mean, what do you make of this one? Uh, look, he's been at it for a long time. Um, it's exhausting to do a daily show, as, we, uh, as we're finding out, right? Um, <laughs> he might, uh, he, he, look, I think he just could be ready to do something else, and it's as simple as that. Um, he's going to you know, be doing, he'll still be involved in the network, just not as regularly as he's doing things. Um, it sounds like he's leaving of his own accord, right? He's still doing it. He's still going to do it all summer. If they, if it was the network, you know, wanting to 
end things with him, they'd be, it'd be ending much more rapidly, as far as I can tell, based on all the <laughs> recent departures and shakeups there's been in cable yeah. news. It seems like when they're done with you, they're done with you. Your final show is tomorrow, or maybe it was yesterday and you, we didn't tell you. So I, I just kind of take him at his word that he's kind of done with it, and he's passing it on to um, the, uh, another person. Now, I, I think Chuck Todd, regardless of you know what your opinions are of his commentary, his journalism, is kind of a known name. I, I Probably people watch for him and for who he is, and I'm not sure he can hand that off to just anyone, but I don't really know. Maybe I, I, like, that's just a theory. That could be totally wrong. Well, he's being replaced by uh, Kristen Welker, who is also at NBC News, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a familiar face to people who turn on uh, that, that channel. I was looking at Chuck Todd's trajectory to this uh, position, and it seems like it was, you know, he dropped out of college, worked for some not especially notable political campaigns, wrote for some publications, um, was brought in uh, to the fold, um, you know, by other journalists. It, it, it is the kind of career that I think a lot of people can't imagine accessing today when, for better or worse, the, there's like a, a different kind of credentialism and mm. expectations of these kind of new ho news hosts. You compare someone like Rachel Maddow, who was venerated for being a Rhodes Scholar, with Chuck Todd, who had a much more uh, less traditional uh, trajectory into the news. Oh, you mean he doesn't have as impressive a pedigree? Is what you're saying? Right, or having like jumped the hurdles yeah. that. Given well, the more crowded field, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily expect. But also, you know, wasn't necessarily known for being especially charismatic or dynamic yeah. or having a big personality like a Keith Oberman type either. So he did occupy an odd space. He's like a politics nerd, right? He's a he's a details guy who just knows politics and loves politics. Sure. And, yeah. Is he a details guy? Does he know a lot about politics, or is that kind of the presumption of someone who's been around politics for a little bit I mean, bit he of knows time. a lot about the horse race element of it, right? The 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 pollster type stuff. The yeah. the politics as sport. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not. Which I'm again. Which I'm kind of denigrating as I'm describing here. And not a. Not you're right. Not a it's, commanding. It's the Beltway guy. It's, it's, the, the, it's the view the, from nowhere. Exactly. From nowhere. It's the kind of guy who came up through you know working working on a campaign and working yeah. on some uh, magazines, um, and who has had that lens in this role for a time. So he's not going far. It seems he'll be around. It'll be interesting to see if at all if there's any difference at all when you look at uh, Kristen Welker and what she does with the show. But it's also worth noting that Chuck Todd was a big misinformation guy. I don't know if you remember that uh, colloquy he had um, about uh, uh, alternative, alternative facts. facts. That's where it started, right. Uh, that was with Kellyanne Conway, mm -hmm. I believe, mm -hmm. uh, former advisor to President Trump, um, commenting on what, that was Sean Spicer, I mm -hmm. believe, was the press secretary at the time mm -hmm. for Donald Trump. And uh, she was having an argument with Chuck Todd about it, and, and Chuck Todd made some claim. I don't even remember what the underlying issue was about. Me either. And she said that, well, Sean Spicer had presented alternative facts to what, you know, alternative to what you had said. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of had a high horse moment where he was like, well, their alternative facts are just lies. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no, there are no alternative facts, there's just facts. But that's kind of like, that's missing the point that we, we disagree, or they were disagreeing and people just in general disagree on what the underlying facts are. Uh, in fact, very sure. in, well, well informed and smart people can disagree. <laughs> they, that can happen, and sometimes people lie. Yeah. And there's no factual record to support what they're saying. So, you know, I, again. Oh, that's, right. This was about the size of the 
Trump's crowd. Uh, the Trump's crowd. That, Trump's that's crowds. what all of this is about. <laughs> so, yes, sometimes people right. just lie <laughs> to save face. Um, but that was, did, does feel in retrospect like this weird historical turning point and, and how we talked about the news. So much language was minted during that Trump era. So Chuck Todd certainly has made his mark in some, in some ways. We'll mm -hmm. see how history bears that out in the longer term. And, and it's worth noting also that leading up to this announcement that there was some reporting on the idea that ratings had been flailing somewhat. Um, he says in his announcement in, in, in the segment that we just watched, you know, we've answered that question. You know, could 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 the, the show survive in the contemporary media cycle? Well, we've answered that question and then some. But, you know, there have how would have you answered that question exactly? The show obviously persists uh, and has grown in certain ways, but also has been suffering from the same kind of ratings crises that the industry as a whole has been suffering from. So I do think that there's a, a lot ahead of uh, Kristen Welker um, in terms of being able to keep this ship afloat. I would also put Chuck Todd in the category of journalists who, for better or worse, um, treated Trump and the people who accompanied him in the White House, the broader Trump environment, as so pathologically dishonest that it was like an it was an exception. Like it, the alternative facts was part of that. Like this, this is just this is beyond the pale. This is a level of lying that no political figure has ever engaged in. That you know, you, you're right. You can have your opinion, but if your opinion is misinformation, that's harmful to the health of democracy. That kind of thing, that is um, that from my point of view is very cloying and very catastrophizing everything yeah. and, and lost credibility with uh, viewers who maybe recognize that, yeah, Trump is exaggerating all sorts of things and lying about all sorts of really petty things. But what about the, what about the significant lies that sure. have been sold to the American people by political figures in both parties, by previous Republican administrations with the support of Democrats, you know, George Bush and Hillary Clinton, everybody getting together to say Iraq would be a great idea and we have to do this and they'll greet us as liberators and they have weapons of mass destruction and it'll be easy clean up, we'll have a stable democracy in the Middle East, yeah. the most significant um, political, tactical, uh, strategic policy mistake in our lifetimes, perhaps. Yeah. And that was treated as, well, you know, that was, here's what people think. But then Trump, oh, this is disinformation, deadly, yeah. scary, the, the can't normalize of, yeah, The it. thing about the Trump lies, like, for the example, the, the crowd size ones, is that they're so blatant that they get people's heckles up. And it does cause folks to lose a sense of proportionality. And that is one of his political gifts, I got to say, whether it's, it's strategic and purposeful or not. He is very adept at getting people to focus on the things that aren't ever going to really take them down because they're petty. And if you like him, you're not going to stop liking him because of something like that. Right. But it is a really great distraction from the more substantive issues. And, and people like Chuck Todd have fallen for that um, over the last five or six years or so. So we'll see if this is a new changing of the guard. The th a thorough roasting of Chuck Todd that I didn't even know we had in us. But uh, here we go. Uh, tomorrow on Rising, Bree and I will be right back here. Same rising time, same rising place <laughs> to bring you the biggest news of the day. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. See you tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye.